I told you I couldn't breathe, damn it. Uh, before we get started, we had to go back in and redo our channels. Uh, we had to restart because for some reason it wouldn't let us open up um, our old status. So we had to go in and change it. And then I couldn't get my passwords to be able to get this stuff out. So um, just to let you know, when we reset everything up, um, it'll go through Anchor again. So I'll send out the new link. Um, it'll be connected to Breaker, Google Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Radio Public, and other outlets. So they'll send us that information out. Uh, also, we will be downloading our episodes to YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. I probably won't download the Instagram. Uh, those uh, outlets to Instagram and Facebook. So um, once we get all of that figured out, um, get that in, we're gonna have everything uploaded. Uh, we've got all those episodes waiting to be released. So also just to give you a little disclaimer, um, I don't own the rights to any of the music that you hear in the background. Uh, that is actually owned by the cafe. We are here at the French Press. We're in a different location today. So, uh, it, in that part of the cafe. So, where we left off on our last episode, I was telling you guys that I had a right heart, right heart cat. And uh, after the right heart cat, I got to go home. I had to stay for a couple hours because usually when they go through your groin, you're, um, you had to sit for about six hours. And uh, when you go through that, you know, they make you stay still so that way you don't cut that artery and, and uh, let it uh, set up in your, they plug it. They actually put this little sponge thing in there to plug it. But um, I had to wait for about six hours. They had to give me something to paralyze me so I wouldn't get up because I am a mover. So I had to stay really still, so they gave me something to actually sleep. Uh, so I did get some sleep that day, which is probably a really good sleep. But uh, the next day I was released from the hospital and uh, returned home. Uh, it was really boring at that point because I wanted to get up and move around. And my work has always been my purpose and my focus. And if I can work, then I can, it, it takes my mind off of things that I shouldn't be thinking about. Um, it takes me off the negativity. And a lot of you under, probably understand that, uh, especially when you're so career driven and focused, um, when you don't have uh, a family around. So it, that was been my biggest thing was uh, whether or not I could go back to work. I had to have something to concentrate on so I wouldn't get in that train of thought of um, where I was at, what I've been diagnosed with, the fact that I was going to die from this disease. And that was my biggest thing. I had to get back to some sort of normalcy. And even though my life was no longer normal, um, it became something that I needed to get fixed. Um, every day I, I would get up and I'd fix breakfast. Um, 
I would slowly make my way uh, into things. The, the company that I was working for at the time actually came in, sent my uh, setup for my office in my dining room and then put my whole computer set up, which included everything from my desk, from my printer to my scanner to my monitors, everything was there. They made my makeshift office. Um, but that's how I focused and every day, I would have to get up at the normal time that I used to get up, which was 4 a.m. Because uh, I was usually in the office at 6, so I would still get up at 4. And when I got up each day, this was the hardest part for me. Because what would normally take me just a few minutes to get up and move around had become a two-hour thing. And when I say a two-hour thing, it really was a trial and tribulation for me. So my day started out with waking up. Um, it would take me about five uh, minutes or so to actually lift myself out of bed. And I would raise up and then I would have to catch my breath. That was really hard for me just to adjust mentally to what I it would usually take a few minutes and I would already be in the bathroom. Uh, would take me five minutes to actually sit up in the bed and I would be so out of breath it was funny. So then I would sit up in bed, I'd take five minutes to recover, and then I would stand up, and it would take another couple of minutes to recover. And as I was doing this, what was 25 feet from my bed to the bathroom, maybe not even 25 feet, maybe 10 or 15, would take me 30 minutes to get there, just to go sit on the toilet, uh, and then walk into the lavatory area to brush my teeth, put my contacts in, just to start a normal day, brush my hair, um, take a shower. Uh, we had to put a stool in the shower because I would pass out and I had to throw the oxygen cord over the shower <laughs> to be able to take a shower. Uh, it was just that much energy exertion and when you don't have the air capacity anymore or being able to breathe you can't do those things um, and it was hard for people to understand that's the amount of time it took me to, to do these things i had a chair sitting in my shower and uh, my dad had came in and set me up one of those little, you know, handles where you can remove the shower and you can wash yourself off where you're sitting. And at some point in time, uh, during the month of August of 2014, um, I actually had assistance to be able to take a shower and things like that. And uh, it was it was definitely humiliating. Um, and you lose all sense of humility when you're tired from something. Um, my mother would come in uh, as well, and she started sleeping. I have a king-size bed, so she would start sleeping in my room at night because I would stop breathing, and she would have to reach over and hit me and make sure that I was awake. That was really tough for her it was tough for me because i would stop breathing i don't know how many times during the night so uh 
that was a big thing that she had to deal with. Um, it's hard to explain how you decline in health uh, and what you're you know, dealing with your diagnosis, dealing with the fact that you're going to decline, uh, not realizing how quickly you're going to decline. Uh, it, it was just a, a whole other thing. Uh, I had home oxygen, and my concentrator was now bigger. Uh, I was no longer on the one thing that uh, every time you walked, you would get, um, you have to get that puff of air. Uh, and it started, you know, like I said, you know, it was just a huge setup in my house. I had a four foot tank that was in my hallway. So in case electricity went out, mother would rush over there and she would hook it up uh, because the big concentrator would go out. So um, that was very hard for her and uh, my nose is itching. And you guys can hear the noise in the background. That is actually the, the cafe working. So I apologize. And like I said, you guys get raw, but maybe we can kind of move some of that out. But um, it was hard for me to do a routine and then go in there, take my meds in the morning because I'd have to do that, take my blood pressure, things like that, and then walk into uh, my office area and then uh, sit down, log in, email my boss to let him know that I logged in, even though they could go back and look at that, and just to let him know that, yeah, here I was. Um, I've logged in for the day. And they changed the scope of my work abilities when I was there. Um, we had a huge rig schedule. So I was working in that rig schedule, moving wells around, uh, things like that. So I was able to sit down all day, prop my feet up, things like that. So um, that was how my day went and I would stay there the entire day because I just couldn't get up and go. Maybe I went up to, we'd get up to go to the restroom. Um, during my lunch, I'd actually go lay down for an hour and take a nap because I was always so tired. I had no energy to, to do things. Um, some of the things that I learned as I went uh, the next couple of months is that I couldn't do the things that I thought I was going to be able to do. Um, uh, when you lose your oxygen capacity, uh, it's only being pumped to the major part of your organs, which are all the internal stuff here, which you can't see if you're hearing this podcast. It's going to things like your, your liver, your heart, your kidneys to keep those from failing and then just parts of your brain that are the survival mode or the, the fight or flight mode is what they call it. I mean, and, and you forget things. Uh, I've lost cognitive abilities, the ability to remember things, um, things that I was doing. Uh, I would post things on Facebook and I would get a lot of flack about it from family because I was posting on Facebook and it wasn't for attention or any of those things. It was, I could not write anymore. Uh, I went back and looked at some of the journals that I have written in. I couldn't read any of that stuff. You would, uh, if you've ever seen the doctor's handwriting and you wonder 
what in the world are they writing? And it looks like chicken scratching. And if you've ever seen shorthand, it was worse than that. And I took shorthand in high school. So it was horrible. And I just, I couldn't even read any of that. I couldn't even write. I couldn't write as fast as the thoughts that were going through my head. So it was easier for me to type because I can type about a hundred words a minute. And being able to convey it that way was not just for everyone else that was on my Facebook friends list, but it was for a record or a blog for me, kind of like a personal blog, to be able to remember things. Um, if I was to survive this, that I could remember those things if I needed to recall them later on. And I could save them into the Facebook save option and be able to recall those because then also I saved them as well as pictures to be able to write my book um, which I'm still working on so it's going to be a long process for that but it, it was things like that that my family didn't understand they just thought I was putting things out there and I was getting messages from family saying you know these people that are your friends are not your family and they don't need to be all need to know all this stuff and my comment to them was it's not for them you know and regardless of what goes on personally people need to talk about terminal diagnosis you need to know about these things why is it so faux pas for people to be able to understand what you're going through on a daily basis it's nothing to be ashamed of uh, it really isn't and that's what upset me that's what's wrong with society today is you make it to where people should be embarrassed of the things that they go through, whether it's mentally, physically, so on and so forth. You can't talk about those things, and you should be able to. How are you supposed to get those out? You know, a, a, you have to get the, over those mental hurdles and make people understand this is what I'm going through. They can't relate. Just like I had friends that would come see me that were very, very good friends and they didn't want to come to the house to see me because I remember one friend saying, I don't know what to say. I'm still the same person. You can talk to me just like you normally do. It's just, I have a terminal diagnosis. I want to see those people. I want to see you come visit me and everything and, and treat me like we did normally. I don't want to be treated like I, you're going to die. And that's the way my family treated me. And if you ever deal with somebody with a terminal diagnosis, do not do that. Do not do that to those people. What you need to do is you need to go see those people. You need to come out and see those people and you need to treat them like they're still the normal person that you came to know, that you know that you've been around, uh, so on and so forth. You need to be able to live a normal life as much as you can for as long as you can and go from there. Um, it, it just is hard to fathom, you know, what a terminal patient goes through 
especially mentally, physically, uh, when you get into those things, and it was hard for me, uh, and it still is, to know that you know your family members and you hear the phrase, well, uh, those people aren't your family. They're not the ones that you know that are going to take care of you. Those were the ones that went to take care of me. My family didn't, um, and I loved my parents and I loved my siblings. But they didn't come there to take care of me. Um, they would come down for a little while and stay a week. My brother and sister-in-law did come down in uh, October to come help me. Um, but other than that, you know, I didn't see any family. My favorite line was, well, if you need anything, just call. I shouldn't have to call. You should be unassing yourself and come in and see me. That's what all my friends did. They came out and uh, they, you know, came in to see me regardless. They were always there. And that was part of like being in the hospital. I wasn't in the hospital by myself. I was there for, you know, I don't know how many days. First time was two weeks. Then a, a couple days later, I was there another two weeks or another four days. You know, I was always in and out of ICU there for four or five months. And that was the biggest thing was I didn't have to ask anybody to come see me. They just showed up. And to me, just showing up just to see how I am, that was, you know, the, the best thing that could they could do for me because it brought my spirits up. Uh, they all know who they are, and I love them dearly. And when I came home from the hospital, I didn't have to ask for anything. I would come home and my house was clean. They had cleaned everything. They had dusted. They had mopped. They had stocked my refrigerator full of uh, fresh food and things like that because they knew I wasn't a big processed food eater. So they would come in and they would fix uh, stock up my refrigerator with fresh vegetables and fresh fruits and things like that. Um, and they even had a spreadsheet going of meal planning where they would come in and fix the meal or they would bring me a meal. Um, and my mom won, so they, if I had doctor's appointments that day, I wouldn't have to have come home and fix anything because it's hard for my mother to get around. And then I was on oxygen. You're not supposed to cook because you're near a open flame. So that was a big thing for me. So excuse me, I have allergies. But um, it's things like that that people need to understand that go on with a terminal diagnosis. You know, we're not incapable of doing things, but the thing about pulmonary hypertension is I couldn't do laundry anymore. I couldn't bend over. I have a front-loading washing machine and dryer, and I couldn't bend over to do those things anymore because if I bent over, I would pass out. And there are times, you know, I knew I was going to pass out because I could feel it. So it was... Um, very helpful and those guys knew that they were helping and then they would come pick me up or we'd go out to lunch and things like that or they would take me to appointments because i could no longer drive anymore i uh, wasn't supposed to drive simply because i could pass out at any time and i could pass out on the road while i was driving and 
and hurt somebody. And that was a very big forethought in my head is, you know, if you go from being independent to be completely dependent. Um, I had those questions of why, uh, why was this happening to me? Why were I going through this? You know, you go through the questioning phase and it's okay to question. It's okay to ask, you know, God, why did you do this? Or why am I going through this? And he will answer you. Not just when you want to know, but he will answer you. Uh, and I was given a book by my neighbor and it was a leather bound book and it was called Jesus Falling. And the days that I questioned, I could actually go in those books on the exact day and it would give me that information. Uh, it would answer my question. And I remember asking that question one day, um, I was, I would get up every morning and I would just thank God for letting me get through the day, um, or waking up that morning and being able to put my feet on the floor. And I remember getting up one morning and say, what did I do? What did I do for me to have to deal with this? to have to go through this. And I remember when I sat up that morning, I opened my Jesus Calling book and the verse, and I couldn't tell you what the verses are. I had to look in the book because I do have it marked. And I remember it saying, I don't give you things to make you suffer. I give you things to learn a lesson and the lesson was stop letting people depend on you and i give you this so you can start depending on other people to help you and it was it was an eye-opener and it was the truth because I had always done things for other people you know I was always going home to see family I would take my vacations I would save up my vacations and take vacations just to go see family was never doing anything for myself I wasn't taking vacations for myself I wasn't going places that I should have been going and places that I wanted to go I, I should have been going and traveling the world but when you travel 75% of the time for your job and you live out of a hotel three weeks out of the month nobody wants to go anywhere I just want to stay home I, and I would travel up to my family in Arkansas uh, for Christmas and holidays and see my nieces and nephews and watch them grow. And I would go up there, but nobody had come down here to visit me. I had been down here uh, 10 years, 11 years before my family ever came down to visit me. Uh, they had not been down to visit me at all. Maybe once, maybe twice. And when I got sick, it was the same way. Uh, they had not been down to visit. They came down the first couple of months I was sick. Uh, the day that I went into the hospital, I had just dropped my mom off the week before. And then what did she do? She come down here. I mean, she had turned around and come right back 
because I was in the hospital. My dad brought her down here. Um, and then I saw my brother in October. Um, and then as I progressively got worse, then, you know, we went from there. But um, I, I, I slowed down and uh, I'm trying to see where our time is, guys. Uh, I slowed down. I had to start doing things for me and hoping that that would be rewarded in the long run. So um, we just kept going at that point. And it, it's hard to describe to other people what we go through or how we go through it. And I don't expect or didn't expect other people to understand or relate um, that I went from being completely focused on a career to now having to be completely focused in survival mode. And that's what you have to do. You have to keep that positive up outlook and then answering that question that day um, that God had answered put things in perspective for me and um, and I don't know how to describe it and that's exactly when I was like you know what can I do all I can do is control how I react to everything um, I have to advocate for myself and uh, hopefully learn from this. And that was my true purpose. And my true goal at that point was to, to put those things together and be able to do things um, in a different way and learn how to adjust myself to do those things. Um, and even though I, you know, everything I did now was slower and it was very, very funny because like I said, it would take me two hours to get up and actually move into work mode. So getting up at 4 a.m. and actually start working at 6 was, it was, it was you know, funny at that point. To me, it was funny because I went from Speedy Gonzalez mode all the time to, I don't know, some of you won't know this, some of you won't realize it, but if you were around when I was a kid in the 70s and 80s, we had the Carol Burnett show. And I actually walked around, if you ever remember Tim Conway, I uh, would do the episode of the sketch where he was like the bellhop at the hotel and uh, he would walk extremely slow. That's exactly how I would walk. Uh, I would use my mom's walker to slide along and it wasn't one of those where you're pushing it, but it was actually me sitting in the chair and scooting, which was probably more effort than it was, should have been if I'd have just pushed it. <laughs> it was, uh, if you could have recorded me back then, you would have laughed because it, it was it was very funny, but then again, it was also scary at the same time. And uh, the fact that I was so swollen, I had to watch my salt intake, I had to watch water intake, because everything that I put in my body, I would retain. And it just made the breathing worse, because if you have a heart-lung defect, 
um, they explained to me that the water that you retain that goes to your feet and ankles, actually anything that you have there is going to be around your heart and lungs because it's not able to process. So all of that's going to be there, you know, there to, to slow you down and it also inhibits your breathing and your, your ability to think and your breathing causes the ability, inability to think um, and not knowing all of this. And you have to research or I researched a lot because that's just me. I want to learn what's going on with my body. Um, what's causing this? Are these side effects? Uh, what do I have to look forward to? Do I need to do anything? And it caused me to write these things down. And when I met with my specialist, I could actually ask them, is this a side effect of the meds or is this a side effect of the disease I have? Um, and I was able to write those things down. I was able to keep track of that. And I just had a laundry list of questions that I would ask my pulmonologist. And in the next episode, we'll talk about those things, about what I addressed with my pulmonologist and actually going to the pH on the road, which I had told you about the last episode of what we had registered for. So uh, you guys, uh, we'll see you in the next episode. So thank you for joining us and take care.